Hello and welcome to another episode of Interregnum with Richard Seymour. Today I spoke with Richard about the Conservative Party leadership election and the legacy of Boris Johnson. We talked about which Conservative candidate has the most dangerous agenda, why it is that both Labour and the Conservatives seem so intellectually adrift, and finally Richard explained why the presence of several BAME candidates in the election can't simply be dismissed as mere Tory tokenism. If you'd like to hear the extended hour-length version of today's interview, then please consider becoming a £3 supporter of the show on Patreon. As well as getting access to extended versions of my conversations with Richard, you'll also be able to access extended versions of other PTO episodes. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. So at the time of recording, the frontrunners for the Conservative Party leadership campaign are the former Chancellor Rishi Sunak, Penny Morden and Liz Truss. Writing in The Guardian, Owen Jones wrote that being asked to choose the least worst Tory to run the country is like being confronted with a smorgasbord of bacterial infections and weighing up the different symptoms and frankly risk of fatality. Which of the candidates do you think has the most dangerous agenda and which of them do you think is most likely to be able to win an election in two years time? Uh, Obviously those two things might not coincide. Hmm. That's a good question. I mean, uh, the most demented, as far as I can see, is Kimi Badenoch, but uh, Suella Braverman runs quite close. I think the least dangerous, but also someone who's highly likely to win, uh, is Liz Truss. I say least dangerous, not because she isn't toxic and opportunistic enough to ramp up the culture wars and uh, ramp up racism and so on, but uh, because she is, you know, demonstrably, visibly ineffectual, embarrassing, and I don't think she would be capable of even having the gravitas to, uh, you know, effectuate the kinds of projections, you know, maternal projection, paternal projection that leads people to invest political authority in her. Basically, she would make Starmer look good. She would be the least dangerous Tory leader, I suspect. Possibly the most likely winner now is Penny Mordaunt. And the reason why she's burst out of the gates and has uh, galloped well ahead of trust is because she has played uh, the transphobia stuff so well. And that's worrying. Because, you know, there are these polls which suggest that the, you know, the average Tory member doesn't care that much about being transphobic. Uh, It's not a top priority. What they really care about is the cost of living and so on. But that's not how the media sphere works. That's not how people sort of act and, you know... uh, there's uh, there's obviously been a certain amount of excitement about Mordaunt's various statements, reassuring people that she doesn't have a penis. And this has generated a certain frisson in the press and in the lobby. They are strongly attracted to this kind of uh, statement. And she's said some things that to them sound quite clever. So... I think that she has demonstrated a, a, a dangerous guile. Because this was a perceived weak point for her, right? Because she had previously positioned herself as a more socially liberal conservative. Oh, I don't know if... I mean, yeah, on that specific issue she had, perhaps. But, uh, I mean, she was saying she was pro-Trump some time ago. So I think her sort of defection to the most right-wing version of populism, at least in terms of the Conservative Party, has been happening for a long time. 
Um, but yes, I mean, uh, I think she probably calculated that the, if this was a weakness, she would turn it into her biggest strength, and uh, it succeeded. And one of the things this signals to the Conservative Party rank and file is that she will dance for them. Uh, if they want something like this, she will try and deliver it, meaning that we can expect some pretty nasty, sadistic acts towards trans people. And uh, I would expect that to generalize. It's not going to be uh, a long time before we start to see the culture war against trans people and the underlying desire to keep men and women in their traditional sort of gendered boxes, see that radiate out into homophobia, uh, more overt forms of homophobia and more overt uh, forms of patriarchy. Perhaps we might see a version of the anti-abortion politics take root in the UK that we've seen in the US and other countries in Europe. You've written about how most of the candidates, with the partial exception of Liz Truss, have turned quite strongly against Johnson's agenda of borrowing to invest, which was very substantially why he won the 2019 election. Uh, we, you know, wasn't simply the get Brexit done line. It's not perhaps surprising that they're hostile to Johnson's more interventionist inclinations. But if they were to completely abandon their so-called levelling up agenda, which even under Johnson has been pretty unimpressive, are they not pretty much guaranteed to see a very severe decline in their popularity in the country, regardless of who's in charge? Yeah, I, I would agree with that. But I think matters are more contradictory than they might appear, because uh, although the line is free markets, Institute of Economic Affairs kind of thinking, a kind of attack on the Treasury uh, style of thought from the right. You know, uh, Treasury thinking is now socialist, all of that sort of stuff. A number of the candidates are beginning to situate themselves not as fiscal conservatives. I mean, they may be conservatives in other respects, you know, the idea of promising tax cuts, but they are not really talking yet about slashing public spending. We heard that from Nadim Zahawi. Mm. Yeah, there's very little talk about the deficit. Yeah, uh, well, that's true. And uh, our comrade James Medway has uh, documented some of this. You know, Zahawi talks about 20% departmental cuts. He's not going to win uh, a leadership election. Um, We've seen Kemi Badenoch um, talk about tight fiscal discipline, spending discipline. But what that means in practice is unclear. Uh, We've seen uh, Mordaunt, I think, talk about deferring repayments on uh, the deficit, uh, or the debt, rather, in order to fund tax cuts, but uh, has also talked about some version of investment, which I think is uh, probably quite smart, because that's where probably the Tory rank and file are. They always have been, by the way. I mean, this is, uh, you know, well-known fact. Studies by Patrick Said uh, et al., um, you know, the Conservative Party grassroots, uh, going back to, I think, the 1980s and 1990s, showed that the default position was socially authoritarian, but with some versions of so-called economic leftism. Support for nationalization of some industries, uh, support for some forms of economic intervention, just not kind of lefty in- interventions that would support people on welfare or whatever. So uh, I think that's where the, the Tory grassroots are, um, and uh, that would be the sensible thing to do. But uh, it, that unavailing, you can also offer the culture wars. By dint of being foreign secretary and then prime minister, 
Boris Johnson over time became more closely identified as a politician like other politicians. And his background as someone who was part politician, but also part celebrity has, has perhaps been a bit obscured by his time in office and, and that process. And thinking about the candidates standing now, for instance, whatever useful attributes she may have, Penny Mordaunt is, is scarcely known among the wider electorate. And none of the candidates could really, I think, plausibly be described as the kind of Heineken candidate in the way that Boris Johnson was routinely described before he became leader. So do you think that the Tories are in even more disarray than is typically understood and that whoever wins is likely to oversee the fracturing of the Tory voter coalition as those who supported the Tories in former Labour constituencies in order to to get Brexit done and and with the promise of uh, very substantial investment start to drift away? Yeah, I think that would be my guess broadly. With the proviso that there's a certain kind of unpredictability at the political base, uh, I do think that there are kind of incipient fascistic energies at work. I'm sorry to use such a vague phrase, but uh, that's about as precise as one can be about this. I think that there is a sense in which uh, you know, there are strong pulls to the right among the sectors of the electorate that might traditionally have voted left. And I think that uh, if a candidate, you know, no matter how uncharismatic, no matter how ineffectual, was able to strike the right uh, sort of antagonistic, quasi-fascistic message, they could actually successfully pull together quite a big voter coalition. A lot depends on how paralyzed the institutions of parliamentary democracy are. A lot depends on what the opposition comes up with. I suppose we're going to start seeing an actual agenda from the Labour Party at some point and that uh, it will be pitched somewhere vaguely to the left of the Conservatives, but rhetorically to the right on some issues, uh, as we've seen, you know, with regard to uh, public spending. And a lot depends on how well that goes down. So I'm I'm not entirely sure uh, what's going to happen here. But my sense is that by getting rid of Boris, uh, you know, I remain convinced they've made a mistake here. I think that it was a short-termist thing to do. Not that Boris uh, doesn't have all the flaws they say he does from their perspective. From our perspective, his flaws are very different. Um, but uh, and not that he didn't bring a lot of instability and chaos, but just th- they don't have an alternative. And I'm not sure they have anyone who is ruthless enough to drive through some form of uh, broader political transformation uh, of the kind that uh, I think he and Cummings might have achieved had it not been for COVID. Aside from Johnson himself and, and, and Dominic Cummings, do you see any thinkers in the sort of the broader conservative project that are staking out positions which could seriously deal with the current situation as, you know, a situation of, of, of high inflation and, and, and the cost of living crisis and the very low uh, level of growth we're seeing, which has led to the conservatives being, you know, very excited because uh, 0.5% growth has just been uh, posted? No, I mean, I, I, I admit that uh, I I may have missed somebody, but I don't see anywhere uh, anyone in the Conservative Party who is thinking in these terms uh, and seriously, rigorously confronting the situation that the Conservative Party confronts today. Because it's not, you know, indeed, there's a complete paucity of conjunctural analysis. You don't expect... Uh, historical materialism from the Conservative Party, but you would expect some of their uh, intellectuals, so to speak, 
to have some grasp on global patterns. And for example, to think about, well, okay, if it's true that we are moving away from the European Union, and if it's true that the uh, relationship with China is not going to be what we thought it would be circa 2015, you know, uh, the Cameron era, let's say, if all that's true, uh, then what is our growth model? Where is our trade going to uh, take place? There hasn't been much talk lately except for, you know, some vacuous references to free ports, which aren't going to do very much. The free trade deals that have been struck have been pretty unimpressive. Um, and the majority of the trading trading arrangements that uh, continue to benefit the UK are those that have been rolled over from the time in the European Union. So uh, what's happening here? Where is this um, uh, you know, reformation going to come from? And then on top of that, you've got the whole problem of legitimacy. You know that uh, food bank use, I mean, one of the things that was obscured by lockdown, although we were all sort of aware of it, but it was playing second fiddle to, you know, epidemiological issues, although I suppose we should have thought about this as an epidemiological issue, food bank use soared. It rose so high that even though food bank use in 2021 was pretty high by historic terms, it actually represented a fallback. I'm looking at some of the data for, for over the, the recent years, and you can see that there's just an unprecedented surge in 2020, and poverty goes up in, in that year and so on. So the pandemic, although incomes were to some extent protected, and although uh, spending went down so that the impact of poverty was perhaps not as severe, it started in you know uh, to create conditions which make millions of people, tens of millions of people, frankly, extremely precariously placed with regard to uh, you know the coming price rises, um, mm. the energy. Yes, crisis. I mean I, th- I think just just this week we've seen reports about the increasing use of, of food banks amongst uh, amongst students as well. Yeah, um, and. More generally, there's the, the you know, we, we've seen incipient forms of militancy. You know, I was really struck by the fact that one of the biggest strikes is, you know, we talked about this before, the BT workers strike, call center strike. Um, you know, call center is where I spent a lot of my working youth. And it's perhaps un- underestimated how salient that is because it's been extremely difficult to get call centers organized. Uh, because of how precariously uh, employed those workers are and because of the high turnover of staff in those locations. But they are a pretty salient part of the UK workforce. I mean, if you look at it in terms of the the total picture, they represent 4% of the UK workforce. Okay, that doesn't sound a lot. But if you uh, look at the numbers, we're talking about 1.3 million people in one particular industry, and that's, you know, in the private sector overwhelmingly in the private sector to get those sorts of people organized i think that's actually quite significant and to have them uh, leveraging their uh, industrial bargaining power is emotionally important just on the bt strikes i mean do you think that's complicated by the fact of bt formally being a publicly owned company and, and a place where the unions of course were organized for a long long time or do you think we're so distant from that time of the company's history that it's pretty much the same as if it were a, a strike that was occurring in the private sector 
It depends what you're asking. I mean, if if you talk, if we're talking about the resonance and uh, you know what uh, emotional significance this has for wider groups of workers, yeah, I don't think the fact that BT was once uh, a you know a public sector entity matters now. I mean, that was uh, decades ago. But obviously, it does matter in terms of the prospects for organising. I mean, I suspect that you know the ability to get organised in BT is a little bit easier on that account. Nonetheless, we are seeing something significant take place, you know, uh, uh, in the wake of the Corbyn surge in 2017, I wrote that there was another country that had been uh, shown, or rather born, because it didn't exist before. You know, we started to see the rudiments of another country coagulate around Corbyn, not because of him personally, but because of what he represented. And it was, um, as you will no doubt well recall, a euphoric moment um, and a slightly mad moment uh, in which a prominent politician was, you know, addressing Glastonbury and being treated as a hero, um, despite the fact that his main hobbies include horticulture and jam making. Well, that country has been occluded. Uh, it's been occulted, it's been hidden for, for some years by Corbyn's defeat and by all the Brexit stuff. I think what some, one of the things we're seeing recently with the enthusiasm for Mick Lynch, uh, with the general public sense that the strikers are right, and this is not uncontested, but there is a strong sense, especially among Labour voters, that uh, the strikers are right. And, uh, you know, more broadly, their ability to communicate with the public that uh, they're being had, that the uh, ruling class is, uh, is making off with all the wealth and hiding it in tax havens and so on. The, the resonance of that suggests to me that we're seeing on a small scale a, a version of that country come through. So there, uh, there is a sense here in which the conservatives may not be able to monopolize the agenda. I would say that for a couple of years... The country kind of defaulted to being a conservative country. I don't mean that in a sort of sense that, you know, everybody's a Tory and all that sort of stuff. I don't even mean that people are all, um, or in their majority, small C conservatives. I don't think that's true at all. But rather, I mean that the national culture kind of defaulted to a kind of, uh, well, it defaulted to existing as a national culture for a start. You know, if you take David Edgerton's history uh, of the United Kingdom seriously, as basically a, a nation that existed for a few decades after the Second World War and is now basically a, a sort of a multinational hub, um, which, by the way, it, it appears to resonate with, you know, people's consumption habits and, you know, what they like to watch on television and uh, uh, watching the movies and so on. Um, if you take that seriously, then basically the, the startling fact about 2020 and 2021 is that a nation briefly came into existence, at least in an imaginary dimension. You know, the top watch shows, one was Boris Johnson's lockdown announcement, and the other was the Euro uh, Cup final in which England played Italy. And in both cases, they, these um, broadcasts, which are among the most watched in British history, were accompanied by a, a, a wider suspension of normality. 
you know, lockdown obviously had one sort of surreal kind of experience, which initially had a utopian element. The other was when basically the country went mad for a few days around the Euro Cup finals, and there were England flags everywhere, massive England flags and drunken fans roaming almost otherwise deserted streets, um, people throwing parties uh, everywhere. Um, so there, there's a sense in which there was a feeling of... Um, you know, after Brexit, the nation coming together. And that strongly inclines in favour of a conservative hegemony, or at least dominance. That's fallen apart, and good riddance to it. Um, so I think that, the, you know, in the broader cultural sense, in terms of the underlying political economy, there are serious difficulties awaiting the conservatives. But that doesn't necessarily mean to say that they're going to be ousted because a lot depends on the opposition um, and on its coherence, on its configurations of power. Um, and I fear that uh, the Labour Party just doesn't have it in them to defeat the Conservatives unless they throw it away. Do you think, I mean, um, uh, you know, a lot of comparisons are made on the left between Keir Starmer and, and Tony Blair. And I think, you know, that's 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 simplifying things a, a lot. But at the level of strategy, it does seem that, that there are a lot of similarities. It seems like the strategy is you try and portray the Labour Party as a safe pair of hands that is more competent at the level of managerialism. And you hope that at some point, some of the conservative press will defect to you. And that that's enough to win an election against, you know, you know a sort of obviously incompetent and, and corrupt conservative party. What's your view on that? Because if I was asked now what the situation would be in a couple of years time, I mean, it's, it's shaped, of course, by who the Tories elect as their leader. But I would think that Starmer has a reasonable chance of becoming prime minister. It's more sort of my pessimism right now is, is less about whether Labour could win an election, but more about, uh, you know, how disappointing that government would likely be. It, this is complicated because, on the one hand, Blair appears to dislike Starmer and to think he's got no ideas and has publicly criticised him. And therefore, you know, when we've seen the Labour right uh, start sabre-rattling against Starmer, undercutting him, uh, you know, leaking against him and so on. So... They see him as a sort of a way station on the way to a more overtly right-wing uh, leader, right? Absolutely. But the other thing is, uh, it's been noted on the left, and I think they're right about this, that that Starmer hasn't actually got the essence of what Blairism achieved. One of the things that Blairism achieved was, first of all, it hegemonized the party, not just through its uh, internal coup d'etat and its uh, constitutional shenanigans and riggings, but also by peeling off the majority of the soft left and articulating something that sounded like a coherent agenda, uh, which uh, you know most progressives could, in principle, sign up to a version of. I mean, even if you uh, thought it was too right wing, you know they were talking about some things that people on the left cared about, and then also they were quite combative about uh, taking on the Conservative Party. So they got the soft left on side, they had the labor right on side, they had the center on side, and um, they went to war, absolute war against the Conservative Party. And let's be honest, you know, I don't like to admit this, but Blair was an extremely effective communicator. Um, I remember at the time, I didn't like him, I didn't trust him, wouldn't have supported him politically, but I remember his um, uh, withering attacks on the Conservative front bench. Uh, in one instance, that involved standing up in front of Parliament and just pointing across the aisle and saying, look at them, 
just look at them and ridiculing them in that way and uh, everybody just broke down laughing and that was I was sitting with a bunch of friends who were like 14 15 years old and they were all saying oh my god he's fucking cool that is not something that um, I would spontaneously <laughs> think about a politician but they thought that was really cool the way he just made fun of them like that um, nobody's going to say that about Keir Starmer um and uh, you know well how, how many 14 year olds do you know richard maybe this is this, this was is what this was talking. a long time ago um so yeah i don't know that many 14 year olds th- these days and maybe they are um sort of i don't know default starmerites but i i suspect not um i, I so i mean uh, you know i think it's not even blairism it is just the the most basic bureaucratic inertia is thinking with the grain of the most right-wing assumptions of the most right-wing layers of the most managerial parts of the Labour Party. And, uh, you know, many of their ways of thinking and their ways of working out the electoral terrain are designed to produce right-wing conservative conclusions, much more so than they're designed to win an election. For example, all this stuff about the Red Wall. Okay, you go and you interview uh, or focus group the most right-wing parts of a former Labour electorate, those who've gone to the Conservative Party, those who are basically in their values quite conservative um, and have been moving away from Labour for some time. And you prioritise their views over, for example, uh, those who are pretty left-wing or at least progressive um, and who are more numerous and who are situated in seats that you want to win, for example, in the South. And you completely ignore them. Well, okay, that's an agenda that's designed to anchor the Labour Party to the right. Um, And indeed, it has a pedigree. You know, I remember back when Blue Labour was a novel thing and uh, it was being talked about gravely and seriously in the press. This was before Glassman, Morris Glassman, said that EDL members should be welcomed in the Labour Party and uh, got a stunning rebuke from Ed Miliband and uh, as a result Blue Labour kind of dropped out of favour. But there was a time, I remember at this time, thinking and feeling that this is basically a way of appearing to respond to the crisis of 2008 while staying pretty strongly aligned to austerity. And I think that uh, that project of marginalizing the left, appropriating some of the left's concerns, but rearticulating them within a broadly right-wing agenda, that is basically what Blue Labour was about. It failed. Uh, it uh, didn't prevent Corbyn from winning. And uh, it's been revived under Keir Starmer. Um, so this is not really... On the one hand, you've got the kind of bureaucratic managerial logic. You've got institutional inertia. You've got uh, a sense of the need to keep the left out, which is so ingrained and so instinctual that it's not even properly reflected upon as to what that's about anymore. Um, you know, there was a time it had a Cold War justification. Uh, now it it has a fairly flimsy and intellectually thin basis. Um, so Yeah, I mean, there's a sense of box ticking, isn't there? As if, oh, it's time for us to do our Kinnock goes after militant moment. So we'll do a bit of that now and then we'll do the next thing. And if we do all these things, then we'll end up in a similar situation as, as Tony Blair found himself in 97. Yeah, it's... Uh... 
I guess there's a kind of teleological thinking there, you know. Um, if we do what uh, Kinnick did, then somebody will come along who will be Tony Blair. Uh, who's there Tony Blair going to be? Um, not Big Wes, surely. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, uh, I, I don't know who they have. And this is the problem. Both dominant parties have been running on empty for some time. And the question was always, who is running closest to empty at this particular moment? And the momentary reconsolidation of the big parties prompted by Corbyn's election and Brexit has obviously started to uh, erode. And um, so, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're not going to see the uh, best ideas out of either party and we're not going to see things happen, let's say, because of the strengths of one particular party, but rather whoever wins will win because of the weakness of the other side. Yes, I mean, I suppose um, that lack of ideas seems all the more damning in the case of Labour. The Conservatives at least have the excuse of of complacency because of being in office. They're not forced to come up with ideas in the way that you would expect that Labour would be, given that they're not in office. Um, But yeah. Going back to the Conservatives, uh, until very recently, and it it may to some extent still be the case, the Conservatives were able to deploy their their anti-EU rhetoric very effectively. It was a core part of of cohering their base and and obviously was key to winning the 2019 election. Given that Brexit is not so far leading to any significant revival of the British economy, it's not conveying the supposed advantages of greater sovereignty that, that were advertised. Do you think for the Conservatives there is now much mileage in their anti-EU politics? Will they be able to say, well, Brexit's going badly because the EU isn't playing fair and we will continue to fight them and we will, we will struggle and we will, we will get to, you know, the sort of the, the sunlit uplands of, of, of the Brexit that we initially promised? Or do you think that, it, you know, it's going to become more clear that it was never going to go that way and that people will also perhaps become aware that Brexit has made the country somewhat uh, poorer and weaker than it than it was. I think in a Schmittian sense, they need to decide the enemy, and it doesn't have to be the European Union. And the fact that transphobia is becoming such a salient part of their uh, arsenal suggests that um, they're aware of its uh, declining potency. You know, I think it's certainly not the case that Brexit is going to be reversed at any point. I just don't think there's an appetite for that, even among uh, those who who dislike it. But it is obviously the case that there is a, a broad disillusionment with it. I think that the utility of the anti-EU saber rattling, and of course they can string that out in various ways, is mainly to rally the core vote. This is something, by the way, that the Conservatives uh, understand much better than Labour, for obvious reasons, in that, you know, they, they, they are not constantly obsessing about marginal voters, as, you know, swing voters in small towns. They're thinking about who, who loves the Conservative Party, who is deep in their bones Conservative. They're thinking about the, the loyalty of their base. So that's what uh, the anti-EU stuff will be for. I think one thing that's interesting is that they haven't found a way to reinvent Boris Johnson's antagonism against Parliament, because it's the anti-parliamentary stuff that I think in 2019 was powerful, even more so than the anti-European stuff. You know, uh, and I think that um, in a way, 
uh, you know, various iterations of right-wing populism have found a way to combine the critique of the European Union with the critique of Parliament, Westminster, and so on. So while on the one hand, you know, you've got left or liberal nationalist projects like Scottish nationalism, which identify Westminster as a domineering kind of imperialist power, um, imposing conservative logics and values on the Scottish people when they never vote for them, you've got the idea that because of the EU, and because of the kind of cosmopolitan elite, traitorous cosmopolitan elite that supports the EU, you've got this blob of power that unites the, the politically correct ruling elite in Westminster with Brussels. And I suppose with the declining salience of Brussels, it's going to be harder to make that particular case. But I would not be surprised if some Tory leader, maybe Penny Mordaunt, or maybe uh, Liz Truss, or maybe somebody else, finds a way from government to constitute themselves in opposition to Parliament. That's obviously easier if you're weak, if you don't have a majority, etc. And that's uh, you know a possibility with the next election. But Trump found ways to be in opposition while effectively occupying the most powerful position in the planet. So it wouldn't surprise me if they came up with some way of uh, situating themselves as being up against uh, a corrupt sort of state machine, parliamentary machine, in order to rally a sort of broader cross-section of voters than are particularly motivated by the European Union. On that Trump comparison, when it became clear that Boris Johnson was going to stay in office for a time and was, was effectively going to be a caretaker, there was a lot of excited comment pieces and, and posts on social media suggesting that this was a Trumpian strategy, that he was going to seek to remain in office, you know, that he would, he would hope that something would turn up, that perhaps he could mobilise some sort of grassroots movement, which, which would seek to, through sort of extra parliamentary means, to, to keep him in office. And, and that seems pretty unlikely at this point. And is the problem that the Conservatives, unlike Trump, they can sort of cosplay as being outside of the system. But the reality is that even Boris Johnson was, you know, a, a longtime Conservative politician, you know, a writer for The Spectator and The Daily Telegraph. Trump is much more of an outsider than, than anyone the Conservatives have to play that kind of role. Yeah, and I think Trump is actually closer in his instincts to fascistic politics, whereas uh, Boris Johnson... Uh, is from uh, the libertine end of the ruling class. And I think his instincts are just opportunistic, which is why you've had some, from the left's point of view, some sometimes quite useful and productive swerving and U-turns on his part. Uh, so, I mean, as regards this claim that he's going to try and hang on like Trump, to be honest, it, w it wouldn't be unlike him to be that ruthless but I think the die is cast at this point. And I think the idea that he is going to be able to engineer a scenario uh, in which he returns to power is incredibly unlikely. I think the Conservative Party uh, membership have accepted that he's gone. I think the Conservative Party voters have accepted that he's gone, probably are a little bit relieved. Uh, you know, they didn't necessarily want him to go while he was still in power. There wasn't a clear, uh, overwhelming sort of force of opinion for him to go. But they have accepted that he's gone. And I think that uh, he may well have just bargained for some sort of uh, 
cabinet position or some sort of uh, post-prime ministerial influence. But whatever it is, he doesn't stand a, a chance in the short term of returning to the Conservative Party leadership. It's always possible, of course, that uh, he could come back. I mean, we've seen this before. Remember that uh, Alex Salmond quit as SNP leader, went away for a while, was replaced by somebody very grey and drab called John Swinney, I think, um, and returned and was very popular. I mean, he's not so popular now for uh, well-known reasons. But um, uh, just to say that it's not unknown for people to stage comebacks, particularly when the opposition or when the alternatives uh, appear to be underwhelming uh, and when they have a certain amount of charisma. And I think that, um, you know, it, it may not be long, let's say, before once again the Daily Mail is running front pages saying, please bring us sunshine. Yes, yes. Well, I mean, I think, you know, even Johnson's resignation speech on the, on the steps of Downing Street seemed to be laying the basis for something like that, where, you know, he was suggesting that the decision to remove him was kind of a peculiar, you know, curious one, given, you know, his, his uh, ATC uh, majority. Yeah, and not without a foundation. I mean, if they had uh, a figurehead, you know, you, you, you talked about the Heineken candidate, if they had something like that, fine. They wouldn't even necessarily have to come up with um, a coherent alternative um, if, with regard to the strategy for British capitalism or even with regard to the strategy for the marginals. But they don't. And they can't stop, I think, a lunatic right-winger from getting through to the final contest. They can't engineer a situation in which it's a choice between Sunak and some other trusted uh, establishment figure because the parliamentary conservative party is is not constituted that way now and hasn't been for some time indeed it's you know it's got one of the most right-wing intakes for years so given this they've made a choice for something very precarious and uh, chaotic basically i think on the basis of fairly short-termist signals from the news media from polling and from by-elections. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other PTO shows, then please consider becoming a supporter. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from £3 a month. And if you're outside the UK, you can also now support the show in US dollars or euros. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Thanks for listening.